On February the 1st, 1887, the Lady Vane was lost by collision with a derelict about the latitude one degree south and longitude 107 degrees west. On January the 5th, 1888, 11 months and four days after, Edward Prendick, a private gentleman who went aboard the Lady Vane at Kalal, was picked up around five degrees south and 101 degrees west in a small open boat. He gave such a strange account of himself that he was supposed demented. Subsequently, he alleged that his mind was a blank from the moment of his escape. The following narrative was found among his papers, unaccompanied by any request for publication. I drifted, famishing and tormented by an intolerable thirst. For eight days I lay thinking that if I had the strength, I would drink seawater and madden myself to die quickly. And even as I lay there I saw, with no more interest than if it had been a picture, a sail come up towards me over the skyline. I do not remember anything distinctly after the sight of her. I had a disconnected impression of a dark face with extraordinary eyes close to mine. But that, I thought, was a nightmare. Until I met it again. The cabin in which I found myself was small and rather untidy. A youngish man with flaxen hair and a bristly straw-coloured moustache was holding my wrist. "'You were in luck,' said he, "'to get picked up by a ship with a medical man aboard.' After a day of alternate sleep and feeding, I was so far recovered as to be able to get from my bunk to the scuttle and see the green seas trying to keep pace with us. Montgomery, that was the name of the young man, came in again as I stood there, and I asked him some questions about the destination of the ship. He said it was bound to Hawaii, but that it had to land him first. "'Where?' said I. "'It's an island where I live.' <laughs> So far as I know, it hasn't got a name. He looked so willfully stupid of a sudden that it came into my head that he desired to avoid my questions. I had the discretion to ask no more. We left the cabin and found a man at the companion, obstructing our way. He was a misshapen type, short, broad, and clumsy, with a crooked back and a head sunk between his shoulders. I heard unseen dogs growl furiously, and forthwith the man ducked back. The face thus flashed upon me shocked me profoundly. The facial part projected, forming something dimly suggestive of a muzzle, and the huge half-open mouth showed as big white teeth as I had ever seen in a human mouth. His eyes were bloodshot at the edges, with scarcely a rim of white round the hazel pupils. "'Confound you, Maling!' said Montgomery. Why the devil don't you get out of my way? The black-faced man cowered. They won't have me forward. He spoke slowly with a queer, hoarse quality in his voice. Won't have you forward, said Montgomery in a menacing tone. But I tell you to go. He was on the brink of saying something further, then looked up at me suddenly and followed me up the ladder. I turned and looked about me at the flush deck of the little schooner. Certainly I never beheld a deck so dirty. Fastened by chains to the mainmast were a number of grisly staghounds, who now began leaping and barking at me, and by the mizzen a huge puma was cramped in a little iron cage far too small even to give it turning room. Farther under the starboard bullock were hutches containing a number of rabbits, and a solitary llama was squeezed in a mere box of a cage forward. We heard a yelp and a volley of furious blasphemy from the companion hatchway, and the deformed man came up hurriedly. He was immediately followed by a heavy, red-haired man in a white cap. The staghounds became furiously excited. The black hesitated before them, and this gave the red-haired man time to come up with him and deliver a tremendous blow between the shoulder blades. The poor devil went down like a felled ox. Montgomery gave an angry exclamation and went striding down the deck. Look you here, Captain. That man of mine is not to be ill-treated. Your sailors began to haze the poor devil as soon as he came aboard. That's just what he is, snarled the Captain. An ugly devil. 
My men can't stand him. I can't stand him. None of us can't stand him. If he comes this end of the ship again, I'll cut his insides out, I tell you. I saw Montgomery take a step forward and interposed. He's drunk, said I. The captain began some abuse even fouler than the last. Shut up, I said, turning on him sharply, for I'd seen the danger in Montgomery's white face. With that, I brought the downpour on myself. However, I was glad to avert what was uncommonly near a scuffle, even at the price of the captain's drunken ill will. He reminded me of it with considerable vigour, but at any rate, I prevented a fight. That night, land was sighted after sundown, and the schooner hove to. I found Montgomery very reticent about his purpose with these creatures, and about his destination, and though I was curious as to both, I did not press him. In the early morning I became sensible of a coarse shouting above me. Then came the sound of heavy objects being thrown about, a violent creaking and the rattling of chains. I jumped into my clothes and went on deck. As I came up the ladder, I saw against the flushed sky the broad back and red hair of the captain, and over his shoulder the puma spinning from a tackle rigged onto the mizzen spanker boom. Overboard with them, bawled the captain. We'll have a clean ship soon of the whole bilin' of them. He stood in my way, so that I had to tap his shoulder to come on deck. He came round with a start, and staggered back a few paces to stare at me. It needed no expert eye to tell that the man was drunk. He held out his hand to the gangway, by which Montgomery stood talking to a massive grey-haired man in dirty blue flannels, who had apparently just come aboard. That way, Mr. Blasted Shut-Up. That way, roared the captain. We're cleaning the whole blessed ship out, and overboard you go. Montgomery and his companion turned as he spoke. Can't have you, said the other man concisely. You can't have me, said I, aghast. He had the squarest and most resolute face I'd ever set eyes upon. But Montgomery, I appealed. He distorted his lower lip, and nodded his head hopelessly at the grey-haired man beside him, to indicate his powerlessness to help me. The dinghy of the Lady Vane had been towing behind. It was half full of water, had no oars, and was quite unvittled. I refused to go aboard her, and flung myself full length on the deck. In the end, they swung me into her by a rope, for they had no stern ladder, and then... They cut me loose. I drifted very slowly to the eastward, approaching the island slantingly, and presently I saw with hysterical relief the launch come round and return towards me. Montgomery, who was steering, brought the boat by me, and rising, caught and fastened my painter to the tiller to tow me, for there was no room aboard. The white-haired man, I found, was still regarding me steadfastly, but with an expression, as I now fancied, of some perplexity. From him my eyes travelled to his three men, and a strange crew they were. Their limbs were oddly swathed in some thin, dirty, white stuff, down even to the fingers and feet. They wore turbans, too, and thereunder peered out their elfin faces at me, faces with protruding lower jaws and bright eyes. Montgomery steered us round and into a narrow little dock excavated in the beach. The three muffled men scrambled out upon the sand and forthwith set to landing the cargo. I was struck especially by the curious movements of their legs. Not stiff they were, but distorted in some odd way, almost as if they were jointed in the wrong place. The white-haired man came up to me. You look, said he, as though you had scarcely breakfasted. His little eyes were a brilliant black under his heavy brows. I must apologize for that. Now you are our guest. We must make you comfortable, though you are uninvited, you know. Our little establishment here contains a secret or so. Nothing very dreadful, really, to a sane man. But just now, as we don't know you... He twisted his heavy mouth into a faint smile. The main entrance to the enclosure was passed, 
It was a heavy wooden gate, framed in iron and locked, with the cargo of the launch piled outside it, and at the corner we came to a small doorway. The white-haired man produced a bundle of keys from the pocket of his greasy blue jacket, opened this door, and entered. I followed him, and found myself in a small apartment, plainly but not uncomfortably furnished, and with its inner door, which was slightly ajar, opening into a paved courtyard. This inner door Montgomery at once closed. This, the white-haired man told me, was to be my apartment, and the inner door, which, for fear of accidents, he said, he would lock on the other side, was my limit inward. He left the room by the outer door, as if to avoid opening the inner one again. Montgomery went out after the other. Moreau, I heard him call. Where had I heard the name of Moreau before? Maling, Montgomery's ungainly attendant, came in, carrying a little tray with some coffee and boiled vegetables thereon. I could hardly repress a shuddering recoil as he placed the tray before me on the table. Then astonishment paralyzed me. Under his stringy black locks, I saw his ear. It jumped upon me suddenly close to my face. The man had pointed ears, covered with a fine brown fur. Your breakfast, sir, he said. By some odd trick of unconscious cerebration, there came surging into my head the phrase, The Moreau Horrors. I saw it in red lettering on a little buff-coloured pamphlet that came back with startling vividness to my mind. I'd been a mere lad then. Moreau was a prominent physiologist, well known in scientific circles for his extraordinary imagination and his brutal directness in discussion. Was this the same Moreau? He'd published some astonishing facts in connection with the transfusion of blood, and in addition was known to be doing valuable work on morbid growths. Then suddenly his career was closed. A journalist obtained access to his laboratory with the deliberate intention of making sensational exposures, and by the help of an accident, his gruesome pamphlet became notorious. On the day of its publication, a wretched dog, flayed and otherwise mutilated, escaped from Moreau's house. It was the silly season, and a prominent editor appealed to the conscience of the nation. The doctor was simply howled out of the country. It dawned upon me to what end the puma and the other animals were destined, and a curious faint odour that had been in the background of my consciousness hitherto suddenly came forward into the forefront of my thoughts. It was the antiseptic odour of the dissecting room. What could it all mean? A locked enclosure on a lonely island a notorious vivisector, and these crippled and distorted men. A sharp, hoarse cry of animal pain came from the enclosure, the puma. The cries grew in depth and intensity as the day wore on, grew at last to such an exquisite expression of suffering that I could stand it in that confined room no longer. It was as if all the pain in the world had found a voice. I stepped out into the slumberous heat of the afternoon, striding through the undergrowth that clothed the ridge behind the house, then descending towards a streamlet that ran through the narrow valley. I began to turn over in my mind again the strange peculiarities of Montgomery's man, but it was too hot to think elaborately, and presently I fell into a tranquil state midway between dozing and waking. From this I was aroused by a rustling amidst the greenery. Suddenly, upon the bank of the stream, appeared something. It bowed its round head to the water and began to drink. Then I saw it was a man, going on all fours like a beast. I could hear the suck of the water at his lips as he drank. He looked up guiltily, and his eyes met mine. Forthwith he scrambled to his feet and slunk off among the bushes. I regretted that I was unarmed. Every shadow became an ambush, every rustle a threat. I resolved to go back to the enclosure and thrust myself frantically through the bushes, anxious to get a clear space about me again. I stopped just in time to prevent myself emerging upon a glade. Before me, 
squatting together upon the ruins of a huge fallen tree, were three grotesque figures. One was evidently a female, the other two were men. Their skins were of a dull, pinkish, drab color, such as I'd seen in no savages before. They had fat, heavy, chinless faces, retreating foreheads, and a scant, bristly hair upon their heads. All three began slowly to circle round, raising and stamping their feet and waving their arms. I perceived that each of these creatures, despite its rag of clothing and the rough humanity of its bodily form, had woven into it some suggestion of a hog. I turned as noiselessly as possible and pushed back into the bushes. My only idea for the moment was to get away from these foul beings, and I scarcely noticed that I had emerged upon a faint pathway. Then suddenly I saw, with an unpleasant start, two clumsy legs among the trees, walking parallel with my course. Looking hard, I distinguished through the interlacing network the head and body of the brute I had seen drinking. "'Who are you?' said I. He tried to meet my gaze. "'No!' he said suddenly, and turning, went bounding away from me through the undergrowth. For the first time I realized how the lateness of the hour might affect me. The thought of a return to the pain-haunted enclosure was extremely disagreeable, but still more so was the idea of being overtaken in the open by darkness, and all that darkness might conceal. I began to be tormented by a faint rustling upon my right. I increased my pace, and after some time came to a slight ridge, crossed it, and turned sharply. Presently a shapeless lump heaved up momentarily against the skyline and vanished again. I felt assured now that my tawny-faced antagonist was stalking me once more, and coupled with that was another unpleasant realization, that I had lost my way. I heard the sound of the sea. I quickened my footsteps almost into a run, and immediately there was a stumble in my rear. I could see the thing rather more distinctly now. It was no animal, for it stood erect. My foot struck a stone. Without taking my eyes off the black form before me, I stooped and picked up this lump of rock. But at my motion, the thing turned abruptly, as a dog might have done, and slunk obliquely into the further darkness. Then I recalled a schoolboy expedient against big dogs, and twisted the rock into my handkerchief and gave this a turn round my wrist. I ran near the water's edge, and heard every now and then the splash of the feet that gained upon me. I perceived the thing would come up with me long before I reached the enclosure, and, desperate and sobbing for my breath, I wheeled round upon it and struck at it as it came up to me. The stone came out of the sling of the handkerchief as I did so. The thing, which had been running on all fours, rose to its feet, and the missile fell fair on its left temple. The animal man fell headlong upon the sand with its face in the water, and there it lay still. As I drew near the house, I heard the voice of Montgomery shouting, Prendick! I replied by a feeble, Hello! And in another moment had staggered up to him. Where have you been? said he, holding me at arm's length. For God's sake, said I, fasten that door. You've been meeting some of our curiosities, eh? said he. Tell me what it all means, said I, in a state bordering on hysterics. Montgomery put his hand on my shoulder. Look here, Prendick, he said. I had no business to let you drift out into this silly island of ours, but it's not so bad as you feel, man. Your nerves are worked to rags. Let me give you something. You must simply get to sleep, or I won't answer for it. I bowed forward and covered my face with my hands. Presently he returned with a small measure containing a dark liquid. This he gave me. I took it unresistingly, and he helped me into the hammock. When I awoke, it was broad day. The door behind me, the door inward towards the yard of the enclosure, stood somewhat ajar. A sound came from within, but this time it was not the puma. Though it was faint and low, there was no doubt at all of its source, for it was groaning, broken by sobs and gasps of anguish. It was a human being in torment. In three steps I had crossed the room, seized the handle of the door into the yard, and flung it open before me. There was blood in the sink, and the smell of carbolic acid. 
Through an open doorway beyond, I saw something bound painfully upon a framework, scarred, red, and bandaged. And then blotting this out appeared the face of old Moreau, white and terrible. In a moment, he had gripped me by the shoulder, twisted me off my feet, and flung me headlong back into my own room. The door slammed. I picked myself up and stood trembling. Could it be possible, I thought, that such a thing as the vivisection of men was carried on here? I heard a step outside, flung open the door, and found Montgomery within a yard of it. He meant to lock the outer door. I turned and fled round the corner of the house. Prendick! I heard his astonished cry. Don't be a silly ass! I ran blindly for perhaps a mile altogether, my chest straining, my heart beating in my ears. And then, hearing nothing of Montgomery or his man Maling, and feeling upon the verge of exhaustion, I lay down in the shelter of a canebrake. There I remained for a long time, too fearful to move. Then suddenly I heard a staghound bay, and at that realized a new danger. Stumbling upon the lip of a long creek, I went straight into the water. I scrambled out at last on the westward bank and crept into a tangle of ferns to await the issue. The minutes passed. The silence lengthened out. I stretched my sore limbs and stared around me at the trees, and so suddenly that it seemed to jump out of the green tracery about it, my eyes lit upon a black face watching me. You, he said. In the boat. He was a man then, at least as much of a man as Montgomery's attendant, for he could talk. Yes, I said, I came in the boat, from the ship. Oh, he said, and his bright, restless eyes travelled over me. I say, said I, where can I get something to eat? Eat, he said. Eat man's food. Now, at the hut's. He set off at a quick walk. Come along, said he. The creature was little better than an idiot. I tried him with some questions, but his chattering responses were as often as not quite at cross-purposes, others quite parrot-like. Our path coiled down into a ravine. Its walls grew steep and approached each other. My conductor stopped suddenly. Home, said he. The place was a gloomy passage between high walls of lava. On either side, interwoven heaps of sea mat, palm fans and reeds leaning against the rock, formed rough and impenetrably dark dens. My ape-man reappeared at the aperture of the nearest of these dens, and beckoned me in. In the darkest corner of the hut sat a shapeless mass that grunted as I came in. My ape-man held out a split coconut to me as I crawled into the other corner and squatted down. I took it and began gnawing it. The voice from the dark spoke. He comes to live with us. It was a thick voice with a kind of whistling overtone. He must learn the law. Not to go on all fours. That is the law. Say the words, said the ape-man repeating, and figures at the doorway echoed this with a threat in their voices. Not to suck up drink. That is the law, are we not men? Not to eat fish or flesh, that is the law, are we not men? Not to claw the bark of trees, that is the law, are we not men? We ran through a long list of prohibitions, and then the chant swung round to a new formula. His is the house of pain. His is the hand that makes. His is the hand that wounds. His is the hand that heals. At last, the song ended. My eyes being now accustomed to the darkness, I saw more distinctly the figure in the corner from which the voice came. It was the size of a man, but covered with dull grey hair. I am the sayer of the law, said the grey figure. Here come all that be new to learn the law. I sit in the darkness and say the law. It is even so, said one of the beasts in the doorway. Evil are the punishments of those who break the law. None escape. None escape, said the beast folk, glancing furtively at one another. 
Punishment is sharp and sure. Therefore learn the law, say the words. And incontinently he began again the strange litany of the law. And again I and all these creatures began singing and swaying. Then I heard the yelp of a staghound. In another moment I was standing outside the hovel, every muscle of me quivering. Before me were the clumsy backs of perhaps a score of these beast people, their misshapen heads half hidden by their shoulder blades. Looking in the direction in which they faced, I saw coming through the haze the figure of Moreau. He was holding the leaping staghound back, and close behind him came Montgomery, revolver in hand. I looked round and saw to the right of me a narrow gap in the wall of rock. Stop! cried Moreau as I strode towards this, and then... Hold him. First one face turned towards me, and then others. But their bestial minds were happily slow. I dashed my shoulder into one clumsy monster, and flung him forward into another. I felt his hands fly round, clutching at me and missing me. In another minute, I was scrambling up a steep side pathway, out of the ravine. I ran down a steep slope, and came to a low-lying stretch of tall reeds, through which I pushed into a dark, thick undergrowth. The air behind me and about me was soon full of threatening cries. I fell on my forearms and head among thorns and rose with a torn ear and bleeding face. I had fallen into a precipitous ravine, rocky and thorny, full of a hazy mist and with a hot streamlet meandering down towards the sea. The stream broadened out to a shallow, weedy sand, in which an abundance of crabs started from my footfall. I walked to the very edge of the salt water. Far in front of me, I saw first one and then several figures emerging from the bushes. Moreau, with his grey staghound, then Montgomery, and two others. They began gesticulating and advancing, the two beastmen came running forward to cut me off from the route inland. Turning seaward, I walked straight into the water. It was shallow at first. I was thirty yards out before the waves reached my waist. "'What are you doing, man?' cried Montgomery. "'What am I doing? I'm going to drown myself,' said I. Montgomery and Moreau looked at each other. "'Why?' asked Moreau. "'Because that is better than being tortured by you.' "'What makes you think I shall torture you?' asked Moreau. "'Up the beach were Maling, Montgomery's attendant, "'and one of the white-swathed brutes from the boat, "'and behind him some other dim figures. "'Who are these creatures?' said I, pointing to them "'and raising my voice so that it might reach them.' They were men, men like yourselves, whom you have infected with some bestial taint, men whom you have enslaved and whom you still fear. You who listen, I cried, pointing now to Moreau and shouting past him to the beast men. Do you not see these men go in dread of you? Why then do you fear them? You are many. For God's sake, cried Montgomery, stop that, Prendick. Prendick! cried Moreau. I went on shouting, I scarcely remember what, that Moreau and Montgomery could be killed, that they were not to be feared. That was the burden of what I put into the heads of the beast people. At last, for want of breath, I paused. Listen to me for a moment, said the steady voice of Moreau. In the first place, I never asked you to come upon this island. If we vivisected men, we should import men not beasts. In the next, we had you drugged last night had we wanted to work you any mischief. We have chased you for your good. Besides, why should we want to shoot you when you have just offered to drown yourself? But I saw, said I, in the enclosure, that was the puma. Look here, Prendick, said Montgomery. You're a silly ass. Come out of the water and talk. "'Go up the beach first, said I, after thinking. "'Both turned and faced the six or seven grotesque creatures "'who stood there in the sunlight, "'casting shadows and yet so incredibly unreal. 
Montgomery cracked his whip at them, and they fled helter-skelter into the trees. When Montgomery and Moreau were at a distance I judged sufficient, I waded ashore. That's better, said Moreau, without affectation. As it is, you have wasted the best part of my day with your confounded imagination. And with a touch of contempt that humiliated me, he and Montgomery turned and went on in silence before me. The knot of beast men stood back among the trees. They may once have been animals, but I never before saw an animal trying to think. And now, Prendick, I will explain, said Dr. Moreau. He sat in my deck chair, a cigar half-consumed held in his dexterous fingers. The light of the lamp fell on his white hair. He stared through the little window out at the starlight. These creatures you have seen are animals carven and wrought into new shapes. Yet it is not simply the outward form of an animal which I can change. The physiology, the chemical rhythm of the creature, may also be made to undergo an enduring modification. Some such things have been hit upon in the last resort of surgery. Most of the kindred evidence has been demonstrated, as it were, by accident by tyrants, by criminals, by the breeders of horses and dogs, by all kinds of untrained, clumsy-handed men working for their own immediate ends. I was the first man to take up this question armed with antiseptic surgery and with a really scientific knowledge of the laws of growth. But, said I, where is your justification for inflicting all this pain? The only thing that could excuse vivisection to me would be some application. Precisely, said he. But you see, I am differently constituted. So long as visible or audible pain turns you sick, so long as your own pains drive you, so long as pain underlies your propositions about sin, so long, I tell you, you are an animal, thinking a little less obscurely what an animal feels. This pain is such a little thing. It may be that save in this little planet, this speck of cosmic dust, invisible long before the nearest star could be attained, it may be, I say, that nowhere else does this thing called pain occur. I am a religious man, Prendick, as every sane man must be. It may be, I fancy, that I've seen more of the ways of this world's maker than you for I have sought his laws in my way all my life. And I tell you, pleasure and pain have nothing to do with heaven or hell. This store which men and women set on pleasure and pain, Prendick, is the mark of the beast from which they came. Pain, pain and pleasure, they are for us only so long as we wriggle in the dust. But, said I, the thing is an abomination. To this day I have never troubled about the ethics of the matter, he continued. The study of nature makes a man at last as remorseless as nature. He became silent. Yet there is still something in everything I do that defeats me. The human shape I can get now almost with ease. But it is in the subtle grafting and reshaping one must needs do to the brain that my trouble lies. First, one animal trait, then another, creeps to the surface and stares out at me. But I will conquer yet. Each time I dip a living creature into the bath of burning pain, I say, This time I will burn out all the animal. This time I will make a rational creature of my own. But they revert. As soon as my hand is taken from them, the beast begins to creep back, begins to assert itself again. Another long silence. Then you take the things you make into those dens, said I. I turn them out when I begin to feel the beast in them. 
They build themselves their dens, gather fruit and pull herbs, marry even. But I can see through it all, see into their very souls, and I see there nothing but anger and the lusts to live and gratify themselves. Yet they odd, complex, like everything else alive. There is a kind of upward striving in them, part vanity, part waste sexual emotion, part curiosity. It only mocks me. And now, said he, standing up after a long gap of silence, what do you think? Are you in fear of me still? I looked at him and saw but a white-haired man with calm eyes. Save for the touch almost of beauty that resulted from his set tranquility and his magnificent build, he might have passed muster among a hundred other comfortable old gentlemen. He smiled. You have had two eventful days, said he. I should advise some sleep. I woke early. A tapping came at the door, and I heard the glutinous accents of Maling speaking. Good morning, sir, he said, bringing in an ill-cooked rabbit in addition to the customary herb breakfast. Montgomery followed him. I was urgent to know how these inhuman monsters were kept from falling upon Moreau and Montgomery, and from rending one another. He explained to me that they had certain fixed ideas implanted by Moreau in their minds, which absolutely bounded their imaginations. This law they were ever repeating, I found, and ever breaking. Both Montgomery and Moreau displayed particular solicitude to keep them ignorant of the taste of blood. They feared the inevitable suggestions of that flavour. The population of the island, Montgomery informed me, now numbered rather more than sixty of these strange creations of Moreau's art, not counting the smaller monstrosities which lived in the undergrowth and were without human form. Altogether, he had made nearly a hundred and twenty, but many had died, and others had come by violent ends. Each preserved the quality of its particular species, the human mark distorted, but did not hide the leopard, the ox, or the sow, or other animal or animals from which the creature had been moulded. The two most formidable were my leopard man, the one who had chased me, and a creature made of hyena and swine. After we had breakfasted, Montgomery took me across the island to see the source of the hot spring I had blundered on the previous day. Both of us carried whips and loaded revolvers. While going through a leafy jungle, we heard a rabbit squealing. We stopped and listened, but heard no more. We also saw the trunk of a tree barked in long strips and splintered deeply. Montgomery called my attention to this. Not to claw bark of trees, that is the law, he said. Much some of them care for it. It was on our way back that we came upon the dead rabbit. The wretched little beast was rent to pieces, many of the ribs stripped white, and the backbone indisputably gnawed. At that Montgomery stopped. Good God, said he, stooping down, and picking up some of the crushed vertebrae to examine them more closely. I saw something of the same kind, said I, the first day I came here. The devil you did. What was it? A rabbit with its head twisted off, in the undergrowth at the back of the enclosure, when I went out in the evening. The head was completely wrung off. He gave a long, low whistle. We must put a stop to this, said Montgomery. I must tell Moreau. Moreau took the matter even more seriously than Montgomery, and I need scarcely say that I was affected by their evident consternation. In the afternoon our party set off across the island to the huts in the ravine. We were armed. Maling carried the little hatchet he used in chopping firewood and some coils of wire. Moreau had a huge cowherd's horn slung over his shoulder. "'You will see a gathering of the beast people,' said Montgomery." It is a pretty sight. Moreau said not a word, but his heavy, white-fringed face was grimly set.
We came to a kind of shallow, natural amphitheater, and here the four of us halted. Then Moreau sounded the horn. The hooting note rose and rose amidst its echoes, to at last an ear-penetrating intensity. Immediately there was a crashing through the yellow canes, and a sound of voices from the dense green jungle. At three or four points on the edge of the area appeared the grotesque forms of the beast people hurrying towards us. As soon as they had approached within a distance of perhaps thirty yards, they halted, and bowing on knees and elbows, began flinging the white dust upon their heads. Say the words, said Moreau. Forthwith, all in the kneeling assembly, swaying from side to side and dashing up the dust with their hands, began once more to chant their strange litany. None escape, from the faceless creature with the silvery hair. None escape, repeated the kneeling circle of beast people. Who is he? cried Moreau, and looked round at their faces, cracking his whip. I fancied the hyena swine looked dejected. So too did the leopard man. Moreau stopped, facing this creature who cringed towards him. Evil is he who breaks the law, chanted the sayer of the law. Moreau looked into the eyes of the leopard man and seemed to be dragging the very soul out of the creature. Who breaks the law, said Moreau, turning towards us. Goes back to the house of pain. They all clamoured, Back to the house of pain, O oh master! Do you hear? said Moreau, turning back to the criminal. Suddenly, the leopard man leapt towards his tormentor. I saw Moreau reeling back from the blow. The furious face of the leopard man flashed by mine, with Maling close in pursuit. I heard the crack of Moreau's pistol. The whole crowd seemed to swing round in the direction of the glint of fire. In another second... I was running, one of a tumultuous shouting crowd, in pursuit of the escaping leopard man. The chase plunged into a dense thicket. None escape, said the wolf bear, laughing into my face with the exultation of hunting. We burst out again among rocks and saw the quarry ahead, running lightly on all fours and snarling at us over his shoulder. At that, the wolf folk howled with delight. The hyena swine ran close to me, watching me as it ran every now and then puckering its muzzle with a snarling laugh. At last, we had the wretched brute pinned into a corner of the island. Moreau, whip in hand, marshalled us all into an irregular line, and we advanced now, slowly, tightening the cordon about our victim. Steady! cried Moreau. Steady! as the ends of the line crept round the tangle of undergrowth. Back to the house of pain, the house of pain, the house of pain, yelped the voice of the ape-man. Then, suddenly, through a polygon of green, in the half-darkness under the luxuriant growth, I saw the creature we were hunting. He was crouched together into the smallest possible compass, his luminous green eyes regarding me. It may seem a strange contradiction, but seeing the creature there in a perfectly animal attitude with the light gleaming in its eyes and its face distorted with terror, I realized again the fact of its humanity. In another moment it would be overpowered and captured to experience once more the horrible tortures of the enclosure. Abruptly, I slipped out my revolver, aimed between its terror-struck eyes, and fired. All about me the green masses of the thicket were swaying and cracking as the beast people came rushing together. One face, then another, appeared. "'Don't kill it!' cried Moreau. In another moment he had beaten off the hyena swine with the handle of his whip, and he and Montgomery were keeping away the excited carnivorous beast people, and particularly Maling, from the still quivering body. "'Confound you, Prendick!' said Moreau. "'I wanted him!' "'I'm sorry,' said I, though I was not. Turning, I pushed my way out of the crowding beast people and went on alone, up the slope, towards the higher part of the headland. Under the shouted directions of Moreau, I heard the three white-swathed bullmen begin dragging the victim down towards the water. The beast people were all still intensely excited and all overflowing with noisy expressions of their loyalty to the law. 
a strange persuasion came upon me that, save for the grossness of the line, the grotesqueness of the forms, I had here before me the whole balance of human life in miniature, the whole interplay of instinct, reason, and fate in its simplest form. The leopard man had happened to go under. That was all the difference. I began to see the viler aspect of Moreau's cruelty. Before, they had been beasts, their instincts fitly adapted to their surroundings, and happy as living things may be. Now they stumbled in the shackles of humanity, living in a fear that never died, fretted by a law they could not understand. Their mock human existence, begun in agony, was one long internal struggle, one long dread of Moreau. And for what? Six weeks passed. Having breakfasted early, I stood by the open gateway, smoking a cigarette and enjoying the freshness of the early morning. Moreau presently came round the corner of the enclosure and greeted me. He passed by, and I heard him behind me unlock and enter his laboratory. Then, suddenly, something happened. I heard a sharp cry, a fall, and turning, saw an awful face rushing upon me, hellish, brown, seamed with red branching scars, red drops starting out upon it, and the lidless eyes ablaze. I threw up my arm to defend myself from the blow that flung me headlong with a broken forearm, and the great monster, swathed in lint and with red-stained bandages fluttering about it, leapt over me and passed. Then Moreau appeared, revolver in hand. He scarcely glanced at me, but rushed off at once in pursuit of the puma. She turned her head and saw him, then doubling abruptly, made for the bushes. Moreau fired and missed. Then he too vanished in the green confusion. Montgomery appeared in the doorway. I told him what I had seen, told him in broken sentences, with gasps of pain between them, and very dexterously and swiftly he bound my arm meanwhile. Then he went out and locked the gates of the enclosure. He was absent some time. The first dull feeling of injury in my arm had already given way to a burning pain when, from far away behind the enclosure, I heard a pistol shot. A long silence. And then came another. Then a yelling cry nearer, and another dismal gap of silence. I went to the corner, startled, and saw Montgomery. His face scarlet, his hair disordered, and the knee of his trousers torn. Behind him slouched Maling. Has he come? said Montgomery. Moreau, said I. No. My God! The man was panting, almost sobbing. Go back in, he said, taking my arm. They're mad! They're all rushing about mad! Where's some brandy? It seems Montgomery had followed their track for some way, but lost sight of it on the stony ground beyond the stream. Maling had come to him and they went on to the huts, but found the ravine deserted. Growing more alarmed every minute, Montgomery began to retrace his steps. Then it was he encountered the two swine men I had seen dancing on the night of my arrival. Blood-stained they were about the mouth. They came crashing through the ferns and stopped with fierce faces when they saw him. He cracked his whip in some trepidation, and forthwith they rushed at him. Never before had a beast-man dared to do that. One he shot through the head. Maling flung himself upon the other, and the two rolled grappling. Montgomery shot that too as it struggled in Maling's grip. Thence they had hurried back to me. What does it all mean? said I. He shook his head, and turned once more to the brandy. It is possibly due to the tension of my mind at the time, but even now that start into the hot stillness of the tropical afternoon is a singularly vivid impression. Presently Maling stopped and became rigid with watchfulness. Montgomery almost staggered into him and then stopped too. Listening intently, we heard coming through the trees the sound of voices and footsteps approaching us. 
He is dead, said a deep, vibrating voice. He is not dead, he is not dead, jabbered another. We saw, we saw, said several voices. Hello, suddenly shouted Montgomery. Hello, there. Half a dozen faces appeared among the vegetation. I recognized the ape-man and two of the white-swathed creatures I had seen in Montgomery's boat. With these were two dappled brutes and that grey creature who said the law. Montgomery spoke. Who said he was dead? The monkey-man looked guiltily at the hairy grey thing. He is dead, said this monster. They saw. Is there a law now? asked the monkey-man. Is there a law? repeated the one in white. Is there a law, thou other with the whip? I began to see how things lay with them. I stepped in front of Montgomery and lifted up my voice. Children of the law, I said. He is not dead. Maling turned his sharp eyes on me. He has changed his shape. He has changed his body, I went on. For a time, you will not see him. He is there. I pointed upward. Where he can watch you. You cannot see him, but he can see you. Fear the law. I looked at them squarely. They flinched. He is great. He is good, said the ape-man, peering fearfully upward among the dense trees. Show us now where his old body lies, said I. The body he cast away because he had no more need of it. It is this way, man who walked in the sea, said the grey thing. With these six creatures guiding us, we went through the tumult of ferns and creepers and tree stems. We came upon the gnawed and mutilated body of the puma, its shoulder bones smashed by a bullet, and perhaps twenty yards further found at last what we sought. Moreau lay face downward in a trampled space. One hand was almost severed at the wrist. The broken canes beneath him were smeared with blood. Resting at intervals, we carried him back to the enclosure. Twice we heard unseen creatures howling and shrieking past our little band, but we were not attacked. At the gates, our company of beast people left us, Maling going with the rest. We locked ourselves in and took Moreau's mangled body into the yard. Then we went into the laboratory and put an end to all we found living there. The thing we have to think of now, said I, is how to get away from this island. What's the good of getting away, cried Montgomery. I'm an outcast. Where am I to join on? And besides... What will become of the decent part of the beast folk? I sat grimly watching his face under the yellow paraffin flare as he drank himself into a garrulous misery. I'm damned, said he, staggering to his feet and clutching the brandy bottle. By some flash of intuition, I knew what it was he intended. You don't give drink to that beast, I said, rising. He flung the doorway open and stood half facing me. You're a solemn prig, Prendick. A silly ass. We're on the edge of things. I'm bound to cut my throat tomorrow. I'm going to have a damned bank holiday tonight. He turned and went out into the moonlight. Maling, he cried. Maling, old friend. Three dim creatures came along the edge of the one beach. One a white-wrapped creature, the other two blotches of blackness following it. They halted, staring. Then I saw Maling's hunched shoulders as he came round the corner of the house. Drink! cried Montgomery. Drink, you brutes! Drink and be men! And waving the bottle in his hand, he started off at a quick trot to the westward, Maling ranging himself between him and the three who followed. I shut the door, locked it, and began to turn over my plans. In the morning I would gather some provisions in the dinghy and push out into the high sea once more. 
I brought the lamp into a shed to look at some kegs I'd seen there, rummaging as well as a one-armed man could, finding this convenient thing and that for tomorrow's launch. The time passed quickly, and daylight crept upon me. Then came the crack of a revolver. Up the beach a bonfire was burning. Around this struggled a mass of black figures. I began to run towards this fire, revolver in hand. I saw the pink tongue of Montgomery's pistol lick out once, close to the ground. He was down. I shouted with all my strength and fired into the air. The crowd of beast people fled in sudden panic before me. I fired at their retreating backs as they disappeared among the bushes. Montgomery lay on his back, with the hairy grey beastman sprawling across his body. The brute was dead, but still gripping Montgomery's throat with its curving claws. Nearby lay Maling. Montgomery was dark in the face and scarcely breathing. I pillowed his head on my rolled-up coat, cursing my ignorance of medicine. Suddenly I heard a thud and a hissing behind me. Great masses of black smoke were boiling up out of the enclosure, and through their stormy darkness shot flickering threads of blood-red flame. I knew at once what had happened. When I had rushed out to Montgomery's assistance, I had overturned the lamp. I looked to see where the two boats lay upon the beach. They were gone. An axe lay upon the sand. Chips and splinters were scattered, and the ashes of the bonfire were blackening under the dawn. Montgomery had burnt them both. Sorry, he said with an effort. He seemed trying to think. The last, he murmured. The last of this silly universe. What a mess. He seemed suddenly heavier, and my heart went cold. I let his head fall gently upon the rough pillow I had made for him, and stood up. Then out of the bushes came three beast people, advancing towards me with hesitating gestures. There was nothing for it but courage. I picked up the blood-stained whip and cracked it. They broke the law, said I. They have been slain, even the sayer of the law, even the other with the whip. Great is the law. None escape, said one of them, advancing and peering. Take him, said I, pointing at Montgomery, carry him out and cast him into the sea. They lifted him gingerly down to the beach and went splashing into the dazzling welter of the sea. On, said I, carry him far. They went in up to their armpits and stood regarding me. Let go, said I and the body of Montgomery vanished with a splash. Something seemed to tighten across my chest. "'Good!' said I, with a break in my voice, and they came back, hurrying and fearful to the margin of the water, leaving long wakes of black in the silver. I heard a light footfall behind me, and turning quickly saw the big hyena swine perhaps a dozen yards away. His bright eyes were fixed upon me. For a moment we stood... Then cried I, Salute! Bow down! His teeth flashed upon me in a snarl. Who are you that I should? I drew my revolver, aimed quickly, and fired. I heard him yelp, saw him run sideways and turn. I clicked back the cock for the next shot, but he was already running headlong and vanished beneath the driving masses of dense smoke that were still pouring out from the burning enclosure. In solitude I made my way round by the ravine of the beast people. Towards noon certain of them came and squatted, basking in the hot sun. The imperious voices of hunger and thirst prevailed over my dread. I came out of the bushes and, revolver in hand, walked down towards these seated figures. One, a wolf woman, turned her head and stared at me, and then the others. I want food, said I. There is food in the huts, said an ox boar man, drowsily. I went down into the shadow and odours of the ravine. In an empty hut I feasted on some specked and half-decayed fruit, and then, after I had propped some branches and sticks about the opening and placed myself with my face towards it and my hand upon my revolver, the exhaustion of the last thirty hours claimed its own, and I fell into a light slumber. 
When I awoke, it was dark about me. I heard breathing, saw something crouched together close beside me. They say there is no master now, said the creature, but I know, I know. I carried the bodies into the sea, O walker in the sea. The bodies of those you slew, I am your slave, master. The thing was evidently faithful enough, for it might have fallen upon me as I slept. The tide of my courage flowed. Where are the others? I asked. They are mad. They are fools, said the dogman. They say the master is dead. We have no master, no whips, no house of pain anymore. But I know, master. I know. I felt in the darkness and patted the dogman's head. Walk by me, said I, nerving myself. And side by side we walked down the narrow way, taking little heed of the dim things that peered at us out of the huts. I looked round for the hyena swine, but he was not there. He is dead! He is dead! The master is dead! said the voice of the ape man to the right of me. There is no house of pain! He is not dead! said I in a loud voice. Even now he watches us. This startled them. The house of pain is gone, said I. It will come again. The master you cannot see, yet even now he listens among you. True, true, said the dogman. They were staggered at my assurance. An animal may be ferocious and cunning enough, but it takes a real man to tell a lie. In the first month or so the beast folk were human enough, and for one or two besides my canine friend, I even conceived a friendly tolerance. It was about May when I first distinctly perceived a growing difference in their speech and carriage, a growing coarseness of articulation, a growing disinclination to talk, and they walked erect with an increasing difficulty. Every now and then I would come upon one or another running on toes and fingertips and quite unable to recover the vertical attitude. They held things more clumsily. Drinking by suction, feeding by gnawing grew commoner every day. My dog-man imperceptibly slipped back to the dog again. Day by day he became dumb, quadrupedal, hairy. I scarcely noticed the transition from the companion on my right hand to the lurching hound at my side. Of course, these creatures did not decline into such beasts as seen in zoological gardens, into ordinary bears, wolves, tigers, oxen, swine, and apes. And the dwindling shreds of the humanity still startled me every now and then, a momentary recrudescence of speech, perhaps, an unexpected dexterity of the forefeet, a pitiful attempt to walk erect. I, too, must have undergone strange changes, my clothes hung about me as yellow rags. My hair grew long and became matted together. I'm told that even now my eyes have a strange brightness, a swift alertness of movement. And then came a day, a wonderful day. I saw a sail to the southwest, that of a little schooner. All day I watched that sail, eating or drinking nothing, so that my head reeled. The beasts came and glared at me, and seemed to wonder, and went away. Slowly, slowly the boat drove past towards the west. In the afternoon the tide stranded it a hundred yards or so to the westward of the ruined enclosure. The men in it were dead, had been dead so long that they fell to pieces when I tilted the boat on its side and dragged them out. Three of the beasts came slinking and sniffing out of the bushes, and a spasm of disgust came upon me. I thrust the little boat down the beach and clambered on board her. When I saw them approaching those wretched remains, heard them snarling at one another, and caught the gleam of their teeth, a frantic horror succeeded my repulsion. I turned my back upon them, struck the lug, and began paddling out to sea. On the third day I was picked up by a brig from Apia to San Francisco. 
Neither the captain nor the mate would believe my story, judging that solitude and danger had made me mad, and fearing their opinion might be that of others, I refrained from telling my adventure further. With my return to mankind came, instead of that confidence and sympathy I had expected, a strange enhancement of the uncertainty and dread I had experienced upon the island. I could not persuade myself that the men and women I met were not also beast people, animals half wrought into the outward image of human souls. I know this is an illusion, that these seeming men and women about me are indeed perfectly reasonable creatures, full of human desires and tender solicitude, emancipated from instinct. Yet I long to be away from them, and alone. This is a mood, however, that comes to me now, I thank God, more rarely. My days are filled with wise books, and I spend many of the clear nights in the study of astronomy. There it must be, I think, in the vast and eternal laws of matter, and not in the daily cares and sins and troubles of men, that whatever is more than animal within us must find its solace. And so, in hope and solitude, my story ends.